The end of the year is fast approaching, and this year the Cood Street Podcast is doing something a little different. We're inviting 24 creators of some of this year's best and most interesting books to join us for 10 minutes or so to talk about what they're reading now, their favorite holiday reads, what they had out this year, and what they've got coming out next. It's a Cood Street Advent calendar, if that's your sort of thing, or it's just a run-up to the holidays for book lovers. And today I'm joined by the fabulous Christopher Rowe. Hello, Christopher. Hello, Jonathan. How are you, sir? It's to be here. It's wonderful to have you. It's been, it's, in fact, it's, I think the last time we saw one another was sort of a, a world fantasy, sort of way back before this whole pandemic thing. I believe it was in Baltimore, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So it's been five years, maybe. I guess so. But yes, but it's been a, a, a busy time, I guess. Um, let me ask you, sort of, we we are either through, either through, or still traveling through this pandemic. Have you been reading? Have you been able to read? Is it still something that is engaging you? I think I'm reading more during the pandemic than I ever have. Because I'm doing less things outside the house, I'm still not, even though I just attended the World Fantasy Convention, I'm still not fully reintegrated with the world. I don't go on group bicycle rides right now. I don't go to restaurants or anything like that. So we're at the house a lot, and we garden, and we read. Um, Gwenda watches a little television. I'm not a big TV guy, but uh, I've read more probably in the last two years across all of my interests than I have for years before that. Wow. Well, I guess that segues into the, the question, that, you know, sort of what have you been re- you know, reading lately, and would you recommend it to others? I absolutely would. I'm going to recommend this book, which is called Astounding. Oh. John W. Campbell, Isaac Asimov, Robert A. Heinlein, L. Ron Hubbard, and the Golden Age of Science Fiction by Alec Noel Lee, which should have won a Best Associated Work, uh, Hugo, but did not. And it's a wonderful, wonderful book. I've just in the last two years, one of the things I've become interested in is the history of science fiction as a 20th century commercial phenomenon in the United States, yeah. mainly, yeah. also in the UK. Uh, in other English language countries. And I've been reading lots of old biographies and even, um, I mean, I've gotten to the point where I've read some bibliographies, which is not, you know, light, pleasurable reading. But this book, <laughs> is, this astounding book by Alex Novelli is about, it's a, it's a four, it's a four person biography, mainly mm-hmm. about John W. Campbell, who edited Astounding, which became Analog, which is still an ongoing magazine. Oh, yeah. 40 years? I mean, for a long, long time, he shaped yeah, yeah. and formed the field from that editorial chair. And uh, so what Naval Ali has done here is gone through and looked at the way that his editorial process worked as it developed with his personality and integrated with the personalities of his three main writers, Asimov, Heinlein, and Hubbard, who are all famous yeah. for very different reasons now. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. And um, we'll get on to other stuff, but the main thing, I am, I have this weird romantic notion of what it would have been like for me to be living in Brooklyn in the 30s and 40s and to wander around to the office and somebody yeah. stubs out a cigarette and says, give me 8,000 words on telepathic robots by Friday and there's 100 bucks in it for you. you know? <laughs> and I, and I, wonder if I, I wonder if I would have thrived in that environment like so many of those guys did. Um, yeah. But it's just fascinating to me, that whole era. Well, it does feel like that. that's sort of the... In fact, maybe if it's a fraction later than the 30s and 40s, but that's what it feels like the Ellison Silverberg era of short story writing was at the beginning of their careers. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, Silverberg will tell you, I mean, there's a point where he's writing short fiction and he's paying for a, an apartment in Brooklyn and 
two overseas holidays a year, one to Europe and one to uh, uh, somewhere else, um, just on short fiction re- revenue Amazing. because he's writing that much short fiction. Mm-hmm. Which and it feels had like an impossible It had to be quantity because the word rates were terrible mm. and, you know, aren't that much better now. Uh, you know, the, no, they're still uh, terrible. They're awful. On, yeah. on a, it's not just that uh, in real, not just in kind of like in $1921 and $2022 that um, F. Scott Fitzgerald was making a lot more than me. He was making more per word in real sense than I was. Yeah, yes, yeah. There, there are, I mean, I don't think the basic reprint rate for a lot of genre fiction of a penny a word right. has changed in 50 years. I mean, for all that we talk correctly and for all that you know, organizations like the SFWA fight to improve conditions and to get the basic professional word rate up, the reprint rate really hasn't changed much. And reprints are lovely, but I mean, they're part of a writer's income and you'd like to think that they would be contributing more. Right. Um, I don't, I mean, I sell reprints, I sell translations. I don't think of it in terms of the money I'm making at all because it is negligible. Yeah. You know, I think yeah, of yeah, it as yeah. uh, reaching wider audiences or different audiences, which is something yeah. that is important to writers. So me anyway. you read uh, Alec Navalny's book and it's a terrific book. Did it change your view or understanding or thinking about that period in the history of the evolution of science fiction? It did. I I learned a lot from that book. I did not know, for instance, that um, Hubbard was like this kind of slick outsider that got recruited Mm. into science fiction. I did not know that um, Heinlein, during the period that Heinlein and I think Elspray DeCamp and Asimov and maybe one other guy were all at the Naval Yard in Philadelphia that Highland kind of bossed them around. There's a there's a bit in there where they're all eating this terrible cafeteria food, and yeah. Highland's patriotism was such that nobody could complain about the food. And anytime anybody did, they had to put a nickel in a bucket. And so Asimov <laughs> was just like constantly throwing nickels in this coffee can or whatever because the food was terrible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, there, there's a certain romance about the you know that period from the the birth of. Uh, the market category science fiction in the twenties up until the post-war period that sounds romantic, but I don't know that it really was that romantic at all. That's yeah, to I don't live think through. so. Uh, because when you read, if you read between the lines of say the Futurians by Damon Knight, mm. he was a, I mean, he was even younger than the rest of them when he went to New York from, um, was it Hood River, Oregon, I think is where he lived. And uh, yeah, so he comes in there and they're all in each other's pockets. They're all living with each other. They're all marrying each other in, you know, in, <laughs> in different combinations yep. and so on. And uh, he talks about it in this really romantic terms. He talks about, I, I think there's a se- sequence in that book where he says, I can see it now. And he's talking about this guy's uh, experimenting with using cactus needles for, on his record label and this guy's back there typing a zine and this guy's doing that and then yeah. and it's talking about the food they eat and you if you if you experience it through the eyes of the 19 year old he was well yeah but if you think about yeah. it as an adult you think my god that sounds ter- <laughs> like terrifically <laughs> poor living conditions you poor boys <laughs> you know? one thing that struck me because you know we've been in correspondence and i've seen your social media is that as well as reading a lot you seem to be writing a lot more. You seem to be going through a very fertile period, period right? I am in the most productive period of my life as a writer right now. Absolutely. 
which actually having seen a little bit seems to be partly in response to the material you've been reading as well oh yeah which is an interesting thing so let me segue in you have had a book out this year uh these prisoning hills came out what can you tell us about it these prisoning hills is a story about um the the notion i had going into it was that it would be about the extractive industries that have so long plagued and abused the peoples and physical landscape of the Appalachian mountains. And so it's also got a lot of about war in it. There's a lot about loss and uh, pain and memory and community. And there's a giant robot. So, the rest uh, of the giant robot. Exactly. That, there, there's your end right there. I got a great cover from Tor.com Publishing um, mm. with, a, with a smoking giant robot tumbling to the ground. Um, it's, a, it's a continuation of what, what my wife, Gwenda Vaughn, who is a New York Times bestselling novelist and far fancier than me in terms of writing goes, um, has this new thing that she calls my yam. Why am <laughs> Y-A-M, which stands for yet another mythology. And that is because I'm mainly writing in three different series of stories right sure. now. Uh, the Yam that These Prisoning Hills is in is the Voluntary State uh, series, which started um, with a novelette that I wrote on the late limited sci-fiction website, which mm-hmm. was uh, edited by Ellen Datlow in the early aughts and sponsored by the sci-fi channel, the, the cable channel. And then I wrote... Uh, a technically novel length, 41,000 word story called the border state in my small beer press collection a few years back called the, it was called the border state. And then this is the latest one. I've got another one in mind and then I'm, I'm writing, I, I love that series and it means a lot to me. It's, it's one of the more explicitly Southern Southeastern United States sure. series that I write, but I write a lot about where I'm from in general. Uh, it's just that this one is kind of this fabulation um, rural fascination with technology as opposed to an urban fascination with technology and kind of extreme extrapolation kind of thing while maintaining a heart and soul of place, I think. Yeah. So these prisoning hills is, is out in the world. And I mean, I, mean, I, just, I would say when I think about that story and the, the, the reason where the cover both matches and almost matches exactly what I think about it, it is that scene, that, that, that scene of, you know, the transformative rains washing down upon, the, you know, those hills, changing the countryside, changing that, that. That's sort of the mood and the tone of part of it. You know, sort of, it is intensely, and it's something that's been said about your work before, intensely p- locally placed. Mm-hmm. It is a fiction of, of, of that region, of Kentucky and everything else where you're from. And I think that that's its primary strength. But, you know, you do do a lot of other things, and this may come into another one of your yams, but um, what do you have coming out in the future? I mean, is, is, is there another Christopher Rowe book to look forward to, or are we still sort of in a developmental phase for those? No, there's a, there's a, there's another book. I've got some short stories coming out. I've got a short story coming out this, uh, at the end of this month, uh, at a mm-hmm. new, po- a new, uh, Substack based magazine, uh, that, um, that Fran Wilde is editing called the Sunday morning transport. And it's a mm-hmm. story, uh, that's set in Cincinnati, Ohio, right after world war one, and then goes into Kentucky a little bit at the end. And I've got a story coming out from Asimov, which is kind of a weird um, afterlife kind of a thing, very brief. But I've got another novella coming out from Tor.com next year called The Navigating Fox. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote a couple of years ago a short story for their website called Knowledgeable Creatures. And it's, I mean, 
I don't mean to sound reductive about my own work, but it's stuff about talking animals. All right. It's, it's it, they're, they're talking animals, fantasy stories. Um, I've got, there's a lot more to it than that. I mean, there's, it's in a alternate world where Rome never fell. And, and then there may be, it could be that mice are the secret masters of the universe. I mean, there, there's a, it's a complicated backstory, but, um, uh, that I, I've gotten a lot of really good feedback on it, and um, and the the uh, once again the cover art that Irene Gallo and her team are lining up for it just looks fabulous. Always, they are just uh, Irene and Christopher, Christine Faltzer and the crew are always fantastic. right. But I mean, is it is that is it fun to write those? Because I mean, it sounds like they're they're a lot of fun. They are they're they're tremendous fun. Actually, both of those series are a lot of fun to write. Uh, one of them, you know, I'm uh, even within a given work. The the there's a gradation of of seriousness and sorrow and and heartfeltness that goes back and forth uh, that I try to modulate appropriately according yeah, to plot yeah. and theme. But um, sure. those two games uh, are, are a lot of fun to write. I'm writing another one now um, that's kind of a dark fantasy thing with kind of some bespoke monsters and spiritual components. The first one of those, which is called Well Away Boys. Uh, Bill Schaefer from Subterranean Press will be putting out as an ebook next year. Oh, fantastic! That's 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 wonderful. So, but let me ask you this because it ties into what you're writing and everything. The reading they seem very integrated. Reading your social media, you've you have consumed Cordwainer Smith. Mm-hmm. You are in the in the midst of of you know, consuming you know, you know, epic you know, sword and sorcery and the work of Michael Moorcock. Right. Is that beginning to to impact on what you're doing and, and, and how you, you know, and what you're writing? You know, Jonathan, I think that epic fantasy, the, the big fat books, I've always described myself. I've always said that that's my home country as a reader. Um, mm-hmm. But I, what I've learned that it is, that it is not. Um, I, okay. Over time, I realized that, you know, I think, I, and I do, I greatly admire the work of Steven Erickson, for example, but I have not in fact read his entire 10 book series. I get about six books in and I'm like, I'm going to read something else now. And then like, you know, and then it'll be like three years later and I don't remember anything that happened in them. So I start all over again <laughs> instead yeah. of just picking up book seven, which is what I should do. And so I've, yeah. um, so I've become, there's a nascent sword and sorcery movement called the new edge sword and sorcery movement that is spread across a lot of small press magazines, including one called mm-hmm. new edge sword and sorcery that just started, um, put out by a lot of very passionate young people, basically, uh, and some older people. And, um, so I've been reading a lot of that and I've been fiddling around with writing some of it, but I think, mm-hmm. I think I have discovered that even though I greatly enjoy reading it and I greatly enjoy collecting it and I greatly enjoy reading about it and reading biographies and so on, literary studies, I don't think it's for me as a writer. Um, okay. uh, you know, Robert E. Howard, the creator of Conan, um, he often used the word zest in his letters to H.P. Lovecraft. You know, a, a yarn must have zest. And I don't <laughs> use the words yarn or zest when it comes to my own fiction. So I, uh, I, I think I'm, I think I'm going to stick with enjoying that work and 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 telling other people to seek it out and enjoy it. But sure. I, I, I doubt that I become a sword and sorcery writer. Is, is the new edge source and sorcery what yarnier and zestier, or I mean, what makes it new edge? Uh, well, what the new edge? Um, wow, I wish I had their little one paragraph. Sentence. I mean, I say this uh, is a new, new edge sword and sorcery. Basically, it's like trying to maintain that energy, the raw end of story, the verve, 
the zest um, and that kind of excitement that comes with bringing together like action adventure with some horror elements and super supernatural elements. And what they're trying to do is acknowledge, but divorce mm -hmm. that material from the very real and undeniable racism and sexism that existed sure. uh, in, in that material for the 20, almost all of the 20th century. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So the idea is to try to somehow try to take what's best from that and also add mm -hmm. some new things. I mean, I know the editor of New Edge Sword and Sorcery is just like beating the bounds, looking for people to write transforward sword and sorcery and and yeah, so yeah. on. So, um, yeah. you know, it's an exciting time for those writers and readers. They're, most of their work exists in small press magazines, but there are a lot of them. I was really surprised to find out uh, that there are I'm so many. I'm surprised to hear there are a lot of them. I thought I would have heard of them. But, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, there is something about a certain, well, I guess I'd say, pulp energy oh, yeah. in a story that is very attractive and which is undervalued and does drive. I mean, if you even if you go back, if you go back to something as well executed as the Fafford Gray Mouser work from Libra, it still has that energy. And it is, in fact, as you, you were saying, maybe, maybe it was in before we started talking, uh, recording, uh, in the Elric stuff, when there's that, there's the short, the shorter stories, the longish novelettes of 10, 12,000 words is form that really was core to uh to that you know to to Lankmar uh, and to a lot of the other work that was written in the 40s and was uh, gathered in the 50s and beyond i think yeah um uh, the the links of i mean people many people have said that the novella is the natural link for science fiction for example mm, um yeah. novellas being loosely defined as something between you know, 18 or 20,000 words up to 50,000 words or something like that. There are, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. It's difficult to define, define these forms, both aesthetically and yes. in terms of markets. But um, I, yeah, I think that, I think that that kind of fiction thrives, the, the sword and sorcery thrives at shorter lengths. And it's, and, you know, we were talking about earlier Liber and Howard, for example, you mm. know, Howard wrote one novel length Conan story and it was a short novel. And, but then, and, yeah. you know, while, Tolkien and his his um, imitators, you know, write these vast, long, worked out novels with like backstories and all that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. those backstories existed for Howard. He wrote a he wrote a an essay called The Hyborian Age, I think, where he laid out in three thousand words the geography and the history and all that kind of stuff. But that's not what they were about. They were about like yeah. you know getting in there and fighting the demon, stealing the jewel. Mm. And riding away from the army and that kind of thing, and um, they were not about. I can't think of any Conan story or any of his cohort where there is a ten thousand word meeting the way there is <laughs> in Fellowship of the Ring, right? Well, I mean, that's because I mean they were writing for pulp adventure magazines. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, I, I don't know if you're a, a consumer of whiskey, but when you distill whiskey, there's a period when they're distilling a spirit. Like it starts off, it's kind of toxic. And it ends up kind of toxic. And the bit they call the heart of the run, which is the bit that they actually end up bottling. And that feels like what, in a way, pulp adventure writers were doing. They're taking that core, most active part of what happened in the adventure mm -hmm. and giving you that as the whole thing. That seems to have been its essence to me. Yeah. And they, uh, I mean, some of those writers, again, we'll come back to Howard. I mean, talk about writing yeah. from the id. I mean, he was. Mm. There are some of these stories where, you know, you read his work and it's even, you know, it's not just a sword and sword story story. It's a Western. It's a boxing. It's a sea adventure. Yeah. And 
you read the stuff and it's like this guy just barely has control of what he is doing <laughs> here and it's yeah, awesome yeah. you know i mean it's i mean he obviously you know i mean if you know anything about howard's life i mean not awesome yeah. but um no. but the work itself is just extraordinarily energetic and coming from a place that i don't try to tap into and access in my own sure family. i'm a much more cerebral writer uh, than, yeah. than Howard ever was. Well, let me ask you this. We are segueing to the end of the year. The holidays, yes. when, in fact, when this conversation goes out into the world, we will be in the holiday season. Is there a, you know, do you have a favorite holiday story or a book that you love to read that uh, fits in with the holidays? Okay, first off, let me say that my birthday is the 25th of December. That's a challenge. I was raised in a Christian, uh, in a Christian community okay. and a Christian family and a you know, Christian home. Um, my Christianity, if it exists, if it can be said to exist at all, is uh, is a lot different than maybe the preachers of my youth yeah. would like it to be. But my favorite Christmas story remains the King James Version of 1611, Chapter 2 of the Gospel of Luke. And okay. I believe, for a number of reasons. One, the KJV, you know, it was written contemporaneously with Shakespeare and Marlowe yeah. and all those guys. And it was written with the same kind of kind of intellectual and, and social backgrounds going on there. So it's a beautifully written passage. Um, and it's also, it's not that I love it for its theology. It's not even that I love it for its language. As a, as a student of language, as a student of history, I have to acknowledge it is one of the most important passages ever written in the English language because of its tremendous mm -hmm. influence on the world. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think personally that in terms of, and for good or ill, and a lot of it's for ill, frankly, sure. I think that yeah. the Christmas story has more influence on policy in the West sure. than the Easter story does. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because the Christmas story is about the birth of a king. You know, it's mm -hmm. about it's the, about the birth of someone who's coming into the world to change everything. The Easter story, on the mm -hmm. other hand, is about the death of a poor creature, and how and about yeah. redemption and about um, yeah. and so on. And and that is a that is not the second half of that story is not what modern Christianity has chosen to to focus yeah. on. Um, but anyway, it's a I you know anybody that reads English should take take a minute with the Gospel of Luke. Um, yeah. you'll you'll get something out of it anyway and is, is are the holidays a, a a rich family kind of time for you or oh, yeah. is, is it sort um, of quiet yeah. uh my wife and i are both from rural kentucky uh different counties and um we uh i am lucky i'm 53 years old and i have a living grandfather who is 97 yeah. 98 wow. he just recently, and he just recently retired from the hardware <laughs> driving back and forth 20 miles each way every day. Um, and his older brother, uh, who lives in a assisted living home is a great, still a great guitar player. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I come from, um, Oh, I think I've got 40 some first cousins. Um, wow. Witness from a much smaller family, um, than I am from, but we, uh, yeah, we both keep a hand in, you know, it's, it's, uh, of where we're from, it's it's not at all unusual yes. to to keep in touch. Now I am, um, you know, the fact that I live in Lexington, which is the second largest city uh, in Kentucky, is a little strange. My brother and my father live about a hundred yards apart from each other, and my <laughs> brother's cousin Kenzie lives a mile up the road. And you know, it's a 
they live on the edges of Row Farms, which is this okay. swath of four or 500 acres. It's a dairy farm that my family has owned for many, many, many years. So come the holidays, you will all come together and a family Christmas will, will ensue. Yeah, um, yeah. We'll go to Thanksgiving happens first. And yep. um, we'll go to Gwenda's family. We're getting a new puppy uh, who yep, I, is I from... Who is uh, who is um, is uh, is it from Jackson County, where Gwenda's family lives, and we'll pick pick him up and go to Thanksgiving. Then we'll go to Thanksgiving on Barnett's Creek, which is where my mom's people live, and there'll be a big hoofra there. And then at Christmas, we'll there's a lot of driving involved, Jonathan. Is what I'm trying it to get. To say. <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of miles get put on the car, even though it's all a relatively small triangle in Kentucky. Um, <laughs> my parents divorced when I was quite young, so I've got I've got two whole separate families to deal with, and then yeah, Gwenda's, um, Gwenda's family is kind of more nuclear and more all put together, and so it's you know you can knock that out in a day as opposed to the three, <laughs> days, takes, the three or four days it takes to see all my family. Well, I hope you and Gwenda have a wonderful holiday season, and thank you so very much for making time to join us today. Thank you. I hope you have a great holidays too. Thank you very much.